Hello, this podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life-saving cancer research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. You can help by donating at conquer.org forward slash podcast. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Lewis. For every 100 cancer diagnoses, five of the patients are young, defined as people between the ages of 15 and 39. In healthcare, we call those patients AYAs, adolescents and young adults. Cancer is unwelcome at any age, but AYA patients face unique challenges. Among them, having a voice in their care plan, financial burdens from treatment, decisions about fertility preservation, disruption to education, disruption to early careers, and if they survive, for many, a lifetime of potential side effects from treatment and the haunting fear of wondering if their cancer will return. Carly Flumer survived thyroid cancer in her late 20s. She joins us today to talk about her experience and share why she now advocates for other AYA patients. Carly, it is such a thrill to meet you. If you don't mind, and again, with a warm welcome, why don't you start by telling our audience where did cancer start with you? What was your diagnosis? What led to diagnosis? And then take us through your treatment. Sure. Well, first off, what a dream to talk to Dr. Lewis. I love the Twitter banter you put on there. It's so great. So I was diagnosed when I was 27 and I was diagnosed with stage one papillary thyroid cancer. It was found by mistake, which is typically how thyroid cancers are usually found is what I've been finding out. There's a reason why it's overdiagnosed. And so I had an annual physical in 2015 and my doctor felt a lump in my throat and we didn't really think anything of it. Um, and so the next year in 2016, he felt the same thing again. And he said, I want you to go get that image. And so I did. And like the first week of 2017. And so when they obviously, you know, but when they do a scan of your neck, they don't just do the area where the bump is called. And so they said, let me also see a tumor in your thyroid. I opted to have a biopsy. And they told me same day. I was very aloof. I was like, okay, well, this is the rest of my life. And um, I'm going to do what the doctor tells me. And I'm going to live the rest of my life and see how it goes. Because I didn't have any symptoms. And my blood work was normal. And so I was just like, well, maybe this is how cancer is. However, I was working at, at a hospital at the time in primary care. I was also in graduate school for health communication. And so... My graduate school was online and I was in school and was in coursework and whatnot. And then I was working full-time at the hospital. So I reached out to my physicians and I said, who is the best person to do this surgery? They were like, oh, what type of cancer do you have? Thyroid is what I said. And they said, oh, well, if you had to get a cancer, that would be the one to get as like a kind of like a downplay on it. And I didn't really think of anything of it at the time. I was like, maybe they're right because look at how I'm feeling. I am able to continue to go to work. I'm able to continue to go to school. I don't know how long this disease has been in my body. So maybe they're right in what they're saying. Maybe this is just how cancer is for me. And so it wasn't until very much later that I would find out that that's absolutely not true. And so I called the surgeon and it was five months to get an appointment. Wow. That's a long time. I imagine the waiting was really difficult. I would say yes and no. They said because it was small, I could wait. 
which was great. But the surgeon that I saw, he was a general surgeon, but he's notorious for his number of thyroid cancer cases. So I knew I wanted to have him. He worked within the hospital system that I worked for. And so in the meantime, my mom, who kind of acted as my caregiver at that time, she said, I want you to get a second opinion in the meantime. And so I did. And he told me the exact same thing that my eventual treating surgeon told me. I met with him and he said, well, the tumor is on the right side of your thyroid. He actually gave me treatment options, which I find is very uncommon. He really focused on what my values were, especially so young, which is something I do not take for granted. And he said, well, you can take out the side with the tumor or you can take out the entire thyroid. And he gave me the pros and cons of each of those treatment options. And I didn't really want to live on Synthroid for the rest of my life, which is the medication that is provided if you don't have a thyroid. And so I uh, I said, well, let's just take out the half and we'll go from there. And so I had my surgery. And then two days later, I was recovering at home. And I got a call from my surgeon. He said, well, we take out lymph nodes around the tumor when we did your surgery to check them for cancer. And he said over 80% of them were positive for cancer. I was like, okay, so what does that mean? (laughs) He said, well, that means that you have to come back and I'm going to do another surgery and I'm going to remove the other half of your thyroid and then we're going to do radiation. I was just in tears. And so I was like, well, I just left the surgery room two days ago. Do you want me to come back? He was like, no, no, you have to heal up first and then we'll bring you back and we'll take care of it. And so I waited a couple months. I had my surgery and then I did radiation. So I did radioactive iodine therapy, which is an oral form of radiation and your whole body becomes radioactive. But during that time, because I was radioactive, it was like a precursor to COVID because When I'm radioactive, I can't be near anybody for a specific period of time. And so I did that and I ended treatment in 2017. So it was like a full year running the gamut of cancer. In the meantime, I still worked in between all of my surgeries and radiation. And I still did school in between all of that time too. And then I graduated in 2018 with my master's and I was able to really relate a lot of what I was learning in school to my treatment journey and vice versa. And I knew when I graduated from graduate school that my mission, my purpose in life was to help other cancer patients. And that's what I do. But the story doesn't end there. So when you have cancer, you get scans and blood work every so often. And I had a yearly scan. And for the next three or four years, 2018, 2019, 2020, all of my scans were clear. But my tumor marker, which is called the thyroglobulin, was not. And so I had asked my doctor about it. And they said, well, the magic number is zero or as as close to zero as you can be. And I was not. And so I asked my doctor about that. And she said, well, for some people, it does not get down to zero and they end up living just fine. And for some people, it can take a little while for the number to go down to zero. So I was like, okay, well, in the back of my mind, you know, I was kind of thinking about it. And in 2021, in the middle of the pandemic, I realized that my cancer had never been treated by the radiation. It just never went away. The scans didn't catch it, but my blood work did. And so when I was imaged in 2021, 
that's when they found the remaining cancer. So I went back to my surgeon for a third time and I said, I want you to do another surgery on me. And so when I saw him, he said, this may not be the last time you see me for this. That's something I won't forget. So I had my third surgery last year during the pandemic. So that was interesting. And then in December, a few weeks before Christmas of last year, I was declared in remission. So that has been my story thus far. And I've been blessed to be able to share my story across different platforms and really give a voice to patients with thyroid cancer and rare diseases and people who have cancer at a young age. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Carly. And there's, there's a lot to unpack, actually. I think we should start with the anatomy and the physiology of the thyroid, both of which you've actually touched on. So in terms of anatomy, you and I actually probably have close to matching scars. I've had my parathyroid glands operated on. You've had your thyroid and, of course, the lymph node removal. So this is all happening at the base of the neck. And again, this is bad radio. You can probably see me touching my own neck. But actually, this is important because I often see people touching, you know, what in um, men is quite prominent, the Adam's apple. That's cartilage sort of in, in the mid-neck. But you and I are actually interested in our base of the neck. I usually, with my patients, kind of start right above the breastbone. There's a little notch right above the breastbone and go up from there. And that's where you can actually feel sometimes the thyroid. So just to be clear, you actually said at the very beginning, you used the word accidental. So am I understanding that the lump that was felt was actually distinct from your thyroid gland? Is that right? Yes. So it was called a thyroglossal ductal cyst. And that it was told to me that it was congenital. So it was there when I was born. They actually removed that as well. So we have a word in oncology, you may know it actually, for tumors that we find, not necessarily purposely, they're called incidentalomas. It is extremely common, actually, when we're scanning the body for other reasons, kind of like your case, to find issues in the thyroid. And then the question always arises, is it safe to observe or should you intervene? And intervene, of course, usually means surgery. As a general rule, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has this theory, you have to do something for 10,000 hours to master it. I would actually empower patients like us if you are going through an operation, you are completely within your rights to ask your surgeon how familiar they are with the procedure, how often they do it. When I was having pancreas surgery, so the magic number was my particular pancreatic operation has demonstrably better outcomes if the surgeon does more than 10 cases a year. So that's kind of one threshold. And then I also want to touch on the physiology of the thyroid. So you talked about how you required radioactive iodine to treat remnant disease. And that actually exploits some really interesting physiology of the thyroid. The thyroid gland, and actually most thyroid cancer, not all, is extremely avid for iodine, meaning it wants to take up iodine. And funnily enough, to timestamp our conversation, there was just a huge mini debate on Twitter about why do we use iodized salt? Apparently, Bon Appetit magazine came out and said, iodized salt tastes worse, why do we use it? Well, the answer is, it is a public health measure that prevents iodine deficiency and prevents thyroid problems. So in your case, you turn that physiology on its head and you use radioactive iodine trying to eradicate any thyroid cancer that was left over after at least some of your surgery. So I'm sorry that you required so many operations. This is a very delicate place to operate. Everyone knows there's high value real estate in the neck between not just blood vessels, but actually nerves they control our voice box. So you and I were lucky to get through these operations and we can both still talk and have a good uh, quality of voice. And then finally, you, you touched on sort of the multitasking that you were doing, where you talked about juggling your healthcare and school and you know, the beginning of your career. And you know, we talked at the top, I think this is one of the unique challenges of AYA care. There's never a good time 
for a cancer diagnosis. And you've already showed us that it's very disingenuous to say, oh, this is the this is the good kind of cancer. You know, this isn't going to really bother you. And of course, there can be so many complications and problems. But AYAs in particular are at this really, I think, vulnerable intersection of where they are in their lives and the medical care they need. And I think you're an excellent example of that. So speaking of that, how exactly did you juggle all those things at the same time? You know, what was your secret? How did you do it? Uh, good question. Since I worked in a hospital, they were very understanding. I think it was my connections to the healthcare system that ultimately helped to aid in my treatment. And then with school, you know, I was emailing professors and telling them I am going to be going into surgery for cancer and I'm going to need extensions. And I would say it was difficult to manage, but it was manageable because of the support that I had. So I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about communications and I want to talk about support. I noticed on your CV, and correct me if I got this wrong, but I think at least for a time, you were at the National Cancer Institute and one of your jobs was actually translating scientific jargon. So maybe we can just touch first on the language of cancer, how potentially mystifying or misleading it can be, and then kind of what you see as a way to combat that. I remember meeting my surgeon for the first time and he was talking about the different hormones that go along with thyroid um, and TSH and T3 and T4 and how they're kind of the opposite in terms of regulation um, from the pituitary gland and hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism and what happens in the symptoms. And he just saw the confusion in my face. He was like, let me explain it a different way. And he drew a picture. And for that was a big deal because I feel like for the majority of patients, if they didn't understand something, they would just wave it off and be like, oh, well, I'll eventually understand it. But for me, for him to use a different learning method to help explain that to me was fantastic. So getting back to my role, yes, I worked as a contractor for the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, and my team was responsible for looking at protocols for clinical trials that are for cancer patients and for patients with rare diseases and for devices and things like that. And we would read the protocols and translate all of that information into what goes on to clinicaltrials.gov. I did a lot of Googling in my, in my time there, and I learned a lot. I was able to like relate to a lot of the trials and through my searches on clinicaltrials.gov, I enrolled myself in a couple of quality of life trials for cancer patients and for thyroid cancer patients. I say, if you can enroll yourself in a trial for anything, do it because even though you might be getting a placebo, you're still advancing research for somebody. Yeah, well, that's extremely selfless of you and talk about putting your money where your mouth is and enrolling on these studies. So a couple of things there, one of which is your doctor who saw sort of a expression of, of less than full understanding and then actually took a moment and sort of clarified, took a different angle. That is a wonderful example to set because in the era of paternalism, let's take trials out for a second. You know, a doctor would walk in, whether it's an oncologist or a surgeon, and, you know, what we said was almost dictatorial. We would say, this is what we're going to do. And frankly, and this was awful from an ethical perspective, it didn't really matter if the patient expressed understanding or not. And now that we're in the era of shared decision-making and, and hopefully living that genuinely, it is crucial that we communicate with our patients and they understand what they're going through and why, both risk and benefit, right? This gets particularly crucial, I think, when it comes to clinical trials. Now, you've already done a very nice job of mentioning the central clearinghouse 
clinicaltrials.gov. So again, for our audience, this is the federally run websites, essentially a constantly updated registry of all the studies that are ongoing, including a lot of cancer trials. And Carly already mentioned, it doesn't have to be therapeutic. You can actually enroll in a trial that, for instance, monitors your quality of life, either during treatment or even afterwards. So it's not always that you're being given an experimental drug. Some of my patients say, oh, a trial, I must be a guinea pig. And I say, no, actually, you could be monitored for being on the standard of care. It doesn't necessarily mean you're getting a placebo either. So I think that's really crucial. And then and finally, again, whether it's the standard of care, Carly, or a trial, the language that we use, the words that we use matters so much. And I think being as clear as possible is crucial. I think the last several years have taught us a lot about health literacy. And I don't say this at all to condescend to anybody, but I think during COVID, we knew this a little bit beforehand, but specifically during the pandemic, I think we've learned that we should not overestimate scientific literacy. And it's a fine line to make sure someone is understanding what you're saying, but also to make sure they don't feel like they're being talked down to. And so when we get into plain language summaries and really trying hard to excise jargon from our words, whether written or spoken, I think that's crucial. I think you've had a lot to do with that. So thank you. You also use the word support. This is something I find comes up quite a bit in the AYA community. And again, it looks different than it might in, say, one of my older patients. So tell us a little bit about support systems, both maybe yours and the other ones that you've observed. So one of the things that I really want to emphasize is the importance of having a caregiver. Because going back to, I think, is what's referred to as white coat syndrome is where you are face-to-face with a physician and whatever they say goes. For me, if I hadn't been given the treatment options, I would have been that way. I was the worst example of a patient advocate. So I really appreciate being given those options. But my mom, who acted as my caregiver, did a lot of the research behind thyroid cancer and having her come to the appointments and having her by my side and helping me to get through radiation treatment very much helps. It always helps to have somebody, a second set of eyes and ears, especially, you know, you're going into an appointment and you have questions, but if you don't write them down, you're more likely to forget them. And so that's another aspect of health literacy that I could touch on, but I know we're limited on time and I have so many things to talk about. But yeah, having a caregiver is extremely important. And then support groups. I was not told about support groups until I reached remission or pseudo remission. And so I highly emphasize those. They're on Facebook. If you Google them through your specific organ. So my FICA is the one that comes to mind for thyroid cancer. But then for AYAs, there are a lot of different groups that you can get involved with for support groups. And I highly recommend them just to give yourself a sense of not being by yourself through all of this, because it is really difficult. It can feel so isolating. And, you know, virtual support groups definitely existed long before COVID. A lot of the online support groups and hashtags evolved from cancer advocates gathering virtually. The breast cancer social media group actually, I think, dates back to 2011. And I think you're right. I think that makes you feel like you're not alone. And I think especially in the last two years, it really has been a sense of kinship and community that you can maintain even when, you know, things like social distancing have been in place. Very briefly, I wanted to touch on the fact that it sounds like your mom did an awesome job and came along with you when she could. Uh, One thing I would also encourage our listeners to do, and you do have to ask permission for this, is it's okay to ask your oncologist in particular to record the conversation. Uh, My patients, especially at the initial consult, but also in subsequent visits, often tell me that they can only absorb so much 
or like you said, because of white coat syndrome, and I apologize that I'm wearing a white coat for our, our conversation today, Carly. They tell me, listen, Dr. Lewis, I'll be honest with you. I was trying to pay attention. I knew this was really important high stakes info. I just could not retain it under the circumstances. And so it is okay to ask if you can record. And that's a resource then that the patient and their families can refer back to. And, and finally, it also prevents the telephone effect. You don't have to distort information by its repetition from one person to the next. You actually have an audio document. So I would definitely encourage people to do that. So it sounds to me like your career in health communications has dovetailed, not necessarily by plan, but now you know, you've made this your purpose with your own disease course. Is that fair to say? Yes. And then are there places that you think that doctors, and I really ask this as a physician as well as a patient myself, are there places that you think we could be doing better? Health literacy, absolutely. I think COVID brought to light silver linings of healthcare or things that were hidden behind the curtain for so long, like they've been there this entire time, but they really brought to light the health disparities that are raging in this country and, and in other countries. And then health literacy with having to know what these different variants mean and what a monoclonal antibody means and different things like that. So making sure that your patients understand what is being asked of them, especially when it comes to prescriptions and imaging and blood work and things like that. Like if I didn't know what a blood work result meant or what I would be getting the blood work for, how likely am I to do the blood work? And if I didn't know what an imaging scan was for, how likely would I be to go and get it and to spend that money to go and get it? If I don't know how to take my prescription drugs, if I don't know how to read the instructions correctly, how likely am I to skip those because I don't understand, I don't understand the instructions. And so one of the things that I learned about through schooling was the teach back method where you're asking your patient after you've told them how to take, you know, a medication or what something is for, like, now tell me, how are you going to take this medication when you get home and different things like that. So you're making sure that the patient understands how to take care of themselves. I think that's ultimately what the physician community would want. And then making sure that patients' values are taken care of and respected. I think I pointed out in the beginning that my physician, he asked me, he said, what do you value in terms of your care besides a good outcome? For me, it was quality of life. And for him to ask me that was really important because for me, it made me seem like not just another person who was coming in for another surgery. It made me feel like, okay, he's treating me as an individual and he's making sure that my wishes and my values are respected. And that was really important for me. Yeah, no, that sounds like an amazing and respectful interaction there that we should all model. I do want to elaborate a little bit on your on your point about prescriptions. Again, to peek behind the curtain of my practice, you know, it's common that patients come to me and they are on and I'm not even exaggerating here, more than 10 prescriptions. So more than 10 medicines they have to take. By some definitions, we call that polypharmacy, many drugs. And what really I think is almost upsetting to me, Carly, is when I drill down, when I'm first meeting someone, I ask them, why are you taking, say, prescription X? They often don't know. Again, this is not me talking down to anybody. I just think it's crucial that people know if they're, if they're taking something into their body, it is definitely in their best interest to know why which I think is empowering for a host of reasons, it's also okay, like you said, it is okay to ask for clarification. It's also okay to ask, hey, is this a medicine I can stop now? So you mentioned a little bit that one of the challenges of thyroid cancer is the need for potentially for lifelong 
supplementation of what the thyroid is supposed to do. So very briefly, again, to go back to physiology, one way I describe the thyroid that you may agree with is I describe it to my patients is it's the metronome of your body's metabolism. And it's a little bit simplistic, but basically the more active your thyroid is, the more hyper thyroid you are, the more active your metabolism is, the more hypo or underperforming your thyroid is, the slower things are. So a hypothyroid patient really has a hard time uh, with anything moving quickly. So the bowels, for instance, tend to slow down. People tend to gain weight. Thinking can become sluggish. The texture of the skin can change. It's a profoundly important organ to get right. And as you mentioned earlier, the pituitary, which is supposed to be our master endocrine gland, is supposed to very, very carefully and constantly monitor thyroid output and adjust its stimulation accordingly. That's where thyroid stimulating hormone comes from. But tell me a little bit now about sort of the challenges that maybe you face with now, I guess, lifelong monitoring and supplementation of your thyroid. Yeah. So when I was told that I had thyroid cancer, I was like, what's a thyroid? The saying goes, you know, you don't really know what you have until it's gone. And let me tell you, I have learned that. As you had mentioned, the thyroid controls so much in your body. So in order to keep living on a daily basis, I have to take a supplement. And the dosage that they provide you for the supplement, the first dosage that they give you is really based on a guess based on your weight and your age and your gender. And so it can take years for the dosage to get correctly with your body. And I think it's especially difficult for females because we reach menopause. And so I'm looking forward to experiencing that conundrum. I tweeted about how remission has been a lot harder than treatment. What I meant by that was because I didn't have any symptoms going into Treatment and throughout treatment, I'm now experiencing the symptoms of having a lack of a thyroid that supported my body. And now it's being supported by a pill whose dosage may be off at any point in time. Like you had mentioned, there are a number of different side effects that a person can feel. And when you have your thyroid removed, you're chronically hypothyroid. And so with that comes the variety of symptoms. And I've experienced almost every single one of those. And so it can be very hard to manage all of these symptoms while in remission. I was in treatment. And then for me specifically, I thought I was clear. And so now that I am clear, it's just like, well, when is the next shoe going to drop? When am I going to experience my next tumor in my body? And so I think it's always in the back of my mind or any patient's mind, like, when is this going to come back? And so that's kind of what I meant by how hard it is in remission. And especially as an AYA, because we have longer periods of life to live. I was talking about this earlier, probably on another podcast, that AYAs are usually put into one of two buckets. It's usually in the pediatric unit or the older adults unit, and there's not really any one unit for adolescents and young adults. And so when we're placed into one of those two buckets, it's just like, well, now I'm not as young as a child where I might forget that this happened to me, but I'm not in the older range where, and I don't mean for this to be derogatory, but I don't have as many years left as somebody who is in the AYA space. And so it's like you talked about earlier, we're just in like this crime of life where we're experiencing a lot of different circumstances and then cancer kind of throws it for a loop. 
Yeah. So, no, I think you said that very respectfully. And it's just the truth that a lot of cancer happens in older adults. The average age in my clinic is 68. And yet I have this very significant fraction of patients who are AYAs like you and are very near and dear to my heart. I was an AYA when I was diagnosed. I've now less than gracefully aged out of that demographic. But no, I think it's so key because a lot of people think cancer is just a disease of senescence of age, and it is absolutely not. And I think your voice is crucial there. And I'm also really glad that you brought up mention of remission. I'd seen that tweet. I wanted to ask you about it. You'll notice we're actually not using the word cure here. And if there's one word I think professional oncologists are a little hesitant to use, maybe a lot hesitant, it's cure. Because what I think cure means, we can even debate the definition. I think it means seeing the cancer be gone by most definitions by five years and, and not return. And that's essentially a promise. That's that's as close to a guarantee as a cancer physician can give their patient. And unfortunately, time can prove us wrong. They can make liars of us. And so we tend to use the word remission, which you've already very nicely illustrated, means entering a state where by every test, scans and labs put together, there's no evidence of cancer. Sometimes we also use the term NED, no evidence of disease. And I realize that's a different mindset than saying cure. You know, cure is what we traditionally were aiming for. I think we're now a little bit more careful in that language. And then the other reason that my own patients tell me remission can be difficult for them, Carly, and I don't know if this will resonate for you. They feel like when they're, say, doing chemo with me, that there's a rhythm to that, there's a cadence to that, that they actually get used to. No one ever wants chemo, but they get used to the tempo, they get used to being seen, they get used to the physical and you know less direct aspects of being in my clinic. And then when that is taken away, they almost feel disconnected and isolated. So one patient described it very memorably as they felt like it was stepping off a treadmill. That sensation of you've been in motion and now you're at the sudden standstill and it's quite disconcerting. So I think that's the other reason that we need to be very careful, not just assuming that remission is going to be easy from a physical or a psychological perspective. And I really appreciate that you've been giving voice to that. I think it's a crucial mental health aspect of all this. So listen, I know our time is quickly closing here. And I just want to, again, take the opportunity to thank you so much, not just, of course, for the podcast today, but for what you do at large, for taking something that happened to you and alchemizing it into good for other people. And I, I am very, very appreciative to you for doing that. So thank you. And thank you also for deciphering all the jargon that doctors like me tend to spew. We sometimes don't even realize we're doing it. And it's important that you speak up and say, hey, you know what? That doesn't make sense. Can you make that a little bit clearer? So thank you, Carly. Thank you, Dr. Lewis. And thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. For doctor-approved patient information, please visit cancer.net, which is supported in part by Conquer Cancer donors. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured, and every survivor is healthy. You can help by donating now at conquer.org forward slash podcast. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page at conquer.org. ASCO and Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation, would like to recognize Helsin, our inaugural Conquer Cancer Vision Impact Supporter. We are grateful to all our donors who support funds, key mission activities, and help create a world where cancer is prevented or cured and every survivor is healthy. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. 
The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.